0: Dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both
1: ends. there folks, this is Associate Editor Kay Scott. I'm all by my lonesome this week here in the recording booth for HPJ Talk. Jenny Latsky has been out on the road this week, April 29th to May 2nd with the Wheat Quality Council Tour. We'll catch up with her later in this podcast by phone and she's got the final tallies from the Wheat Tour. She's also got several uh, interviews from the road. We have Doug Bounds from the National Agriculture Statistics Service. Justin Gilpin with Kansas Wheat, Farmer Lawn Fram, Matthew Nims with the USAID Service, Dave Green with the Wheat Quality Council, and we wrap up with K-State's Romulo Lolato. Enjoy Jenny's interviews and commentary. Today, Jenny Latsky is finishing up the last day of the Wheat Quality Council tour, and she's back in Manhattan, I believe, and I have her on the phone.
2: Well, hey, Kayleen, how's it going back in Dodge City? I, I got to pop in Dodge just yesterday for lunch on the tour, but other than that, I I hear you've been waterlogged, huh?
1: It's not too bad.
2: (laughs) This tour, we saw rain all three days that we were out in the field, and it was glorious. I mean, it's um, always a catch-22 on the Wheat Quality Council hard winter tour in in Kansas, but if you're going to get dry, hot conditions, or if you're going to get really, really wet conditions, and this is a really wet spring, so I did not mind pouring water out of my overboots boots yesterday.
1: <laughs> I bet not.
2: So the tour, for those of you unfamiliar, it's hashtag wheat Tour 19 And what this does, it's a 60-second annual wheat tour like this, and what we do is we bring wheat buyers all up and down the, the grain chain. So we have everybody from flour millers to grain buyers and handlers, not just from Kansas and the United States, but from all around the world. Um, we have people from Geneva, Switzerland here on this tour. And what it does is, um, as you'll, you'll hear from uh, Executive Director Dave Green, what this tour's point is not just to estimate the crop and go out there and, and really get a hands-on feel for what this snapshot in time is of the wheat crop, but to also train some of these folks that are, that are in the grain chain about agriculture and about middle America. And, you know, some of these people not only are four generations removed from the family farm, but they've never stepped foot in a field in their entire lives. And so, yeah, there's a lot of talk about is this tour really valuable? Is it really doing, you know, it, it, it messes with the market. It's not so much that, but the guys and gals that are making the calls uh, to buy our wheat from the farmers, you really want them being as knowledgeable about what that – growing stages of the crop looks like and what the, the perils of growing wheat in middle America are so that when they pull the trigger and they, they buy or sell, they know there are people behind that wheat. So that's, that's kind of what this tour really does more than anything else. But um, everybody wants to talk numbers. So day one, we start off leaving from Manhattan to Colby. Day two, we go from Colby, Kansas, to Wichita, Kansas. And day three, we run um, – from Wichita back up to Manhattan, Kansas. And on day three, we have a final rough estimate from the tour participants after three days of going through into the field, measuring, taking down all these uh, numbers, such as, uh, you know, row width, plant height, stocks per foot, and we put that into a mathematical formula, and each day, um, we gather and tally all these numbers from the cars, from all of these stocks, and we get a, a day's tally. On day three, we release the number. Um, this number is a, is a guesstimate from the tour participants. Um, they take a look at every day's average, and then they kind of predict, well, what's the weather going to do? You know, because right now we are about 60 to 65, 70, in some cases 75 days away from harvesting this really late crop. Um, we got it in late. And so um, we, are, we, we add all those, those things together and we come up with a number that's going to be the, the final, final total bushels harvested just in the state of Kansas. And that number, drum roll, is uh, 305.5 million bushels of wheat in Kansas in this coming service. Now, there's going to be a lot of people that hear 305.5 million and they think that's too high. Some may think it's too low. And honestly, um, you know, talking with uh, Kansas State Wheat Extension Wheat Specialist, Romulo Romulo Lallato, we have to understand that um, the weather from now until harvest, it is the most critical point of a wheat's life. We've got a lot of wheat that's emerging. We've got a lot of wheat that's headed out. And um, with all this rain and this cool weather, the disease pressure could spike in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 days. And, um, you know, like we know, wheat rust, uh, uh, stripe rust, leaf rust, uh, stem rust, those things can be detrimental to a final yield of a crop. Plus, we also have some water logging um, that's happening in some of those fields. The moisture is great, don't get me wrong, but we saw some fields that were that had standing water in them. Yeah, doesn't like to have feet wet, so we could see some fields um, that, that no longer get to harvest. On top of that, when you look at the, the amount of abandoned acres that we have in Oklahoma right now, um, and we're seeing abandoned acres here in Kansas as well, farmers are taking that wheat and they're terminating it by applying glyphosate, and they're using it as a cover crop to plant uh, soybeans or corn into yeah. You know, the price of corn and soybeans is way better right now than the price of wheat. And so that crop number could be much lower at the end of harvest. There's just so many things that go into it. So as we like to say on the tour, this is a snapshot in time. If all conditions are ideal, if everything keeps going copacetic, we have beautiful weather, no hail, no lodging, no winds, no you know, no disease pressure, this is what it could do. At harvest, as we know, it's Kansas. Yeah. What is this, <laughs> the old saying about weather in Kansas? It's gonna change. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the best part about the wheat tour for us is going and making connections with people all up and down the grain chain. And I gotta say, I rode in cars with millers and bakers and and buyers from all over the world. Like I said, and these folks are—it's really interesting to watch their eyes and the aha moments when you're in a field with them and they start making connections as to what they're seeing in the field versus what they see on the screen at their, at their office. Yeah. You know, when they're making a buy sell decision. So I I gotta say, this was a fun experience and I hope we get to go again next year.
1: Yeah. And we've heard some feedback on the, the coverage you've had online and on social, on the social media channels and had a really good response. And I think people, that i some of the comments I saw, you know, on social media, people weren't farmers and they were following along, so I think that's pretty neat too.
2: Good. Well, hey, folks, don't forget you can watch, you can listen to the rest of this podcast. We'll have some exclusive interviews. I talk with Dave Green, I talk with uh Kansas Wheat's executive director, Justin Gilpin, to talk about the Kansas situation. Um, we have Ramela Molado on. I always trip over his name, that poor gentleman. <laughs> um, <laughs> We have have somebody from USDA Mass who is in charge of the mathematical formulas that we use to measure the crop. So it's not just coming out there and swinging a yardstick and making a guess.
1: His explanation is really good because he explains it very well.
2: Right, even for those of us that don't get math. Yes. (laughs) So thanks so much for for holding down the fort while I've been gone. I promise I'll be back in the office tomorrow. I think she (laughs) tailed. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us on HPJ Talk. Hope you listen ahead and and get a feel for the week quality tour. Be looking online for hashtag week tour 19. And I'll see you on the trail, okay, Kaylee.
1: All right.
3: So we are with Doug Bounds and you are with the USDA NASS, right? That is correct. Okay. So Doug, you explained the formula that we're going to be using on the Wheat Quality Council's tour. So maybe explain to folks how this mathematical formula helps us develop this snapshot in time of the wheat crop.
4: Okay, so one of the measurements we take throughout the growing season for wheat to forecast the yield Mm -hmm. is we go out into the fields and we take objective yield measurements where we're taking roughly one ten thousandth of an acre and we measure that and we measure the number of plants and the row spacings and the number of heads in the plant and things like that to get um, an idea of how the plant is maturing and how much is there in the field. So we take the last 10 years worth of that information and we do a simple regression on it and then we use that, the results from that regression to Give us the basis for what we're taking to the field during the wheat tour to use as a guide in predicting yield for the May 1 estimate.
3: So this really is tomorrow when we go out into that field, That's if that crop was to going to go to market the next day, You know, barring any weather, barring any extra pests, barring any extra rusts or any sort of diseases, this should give us a rough estimate of what the yield is right.
4: Right, yeah. So assuming normal conditions and normal behavior of the plants from now through harvest, we can get a rough idea of what yield will be.
3: Okay, so why is it very important for people to understand that this is, as they say, a snapshot in time?
4: Because a lot can happen between now and harvest. Weather issues, um, rainfall, freezes, hailstorms. Lots of of things that can factor in just on the weather side. Then you have things like diseases and pests that that also factor in. So we can't predict what the final yield will be with a high degree of accuracy. We can predict what we think it's going to do.
3: (laughs) And that's the point of this tour is to get people out into the field so that they're more comfortable with what the crop's looking like. They understand what wheat looks like when it's growing and that sort of thing. Um, At NAS what does the week you know the the factor the figures that you're seeing um, right now from our weather reports and all that what, what has it had to deal with since October
4: there was struggles getting the crop in the ground in the fall um, late harvest for corn and soybeans and then the guys getting out and trying to get it planted and then it was wet and so struggles from that and then over winter there was a lot of moisture which is good in a lot of senses and then coming into the spring there's been a quite a bit of moisture in a lot of places, not every place. There's some mm-hmm. spots in the southwestern part of the state that have dried, become drier than they'd like to be. And then you have the weather hasn't quite warmed up quite as quick as most people would like it. So the crop is behind in, in uh, developmental stages in a lot of areas.
3: So now that developmental stages, there's different algor- there's different mathematical formulas based on what the crop size is, right? So if I go out into the field and it's still tillering, it's a different formula than if it's got heads or if it's in the boot stage.
5: We've
4: developed two formulas to help us predict what yield could be. Um, one of those formulas is based on a crop with no heads, and the other is based on a crop that does have heads. And you don't interchange the two formulas, but what we suspect we'll find is very few, if any, fields with heads. So we. We assume we're going to rely on the early season formula in the vast majority of fields.
3: Thank you so much. Is there anything (laughs) else that you want people to understand about this formula or the job at NAS?
4: Just that there are a lot of unknowns between now and harvest. Whatever number comes out from the wheat tour, don't start betting money on it (laughs)
3: because
4: a lot can change between now and harvest.
3: Well, hey, thank you so very much for joining us on HPJ Talk. Folks, if you want to see what the wheat crop is doing, double check. uh, Hashtag WheatTour19, and we'll be having uh, full coverage of this in next week's High Plains Journal. Thanks again, Mr. Bounds. Thank you. We are with Justin Gilpin with Kansas Wheat day one of the week tour technically second day that we've all gathered but the day one of actually getting out in the cars and in the fields and everything what route were you on and what did you see and did anything surprise you
5: well jenny it's great to have you on the tour really appreciate having you here and interacting with everybody on the on the tour you know what's what was exciting for me today is I, I, i had somebody that represented a flour mill that was from chicago had somebody that was representing a flour mill from Saginaw, Texas. Then had a wheat buyer that represents flour mills across Europe and in Africa who's based out of Geneva, Switzerland. And so to have that kind of mix in my car, to me, that, that's really what the wheat tour is about. It's about introducing and being able to tell the Kansas wheat story to the wheat industry and uh, talking about potential buyers and, and making sure that everybody knows everything that goes in into the wheat crop and those who, who are behind it producing it.
3: You know, it's more of an educational thing than it actually is, is gathering numbers. I mean, gathering numbers is great. Right. And, I, you know, I, I like going out there and tromping through the wheat and counting right. my counting my stems and all that fun okay. stuff. But um, it really is educating folks. So did you see anything that was unique today? Did anything surprise you out in the field today?
5: Well, when, you know, going into this wheat crop, we knew uh, when you looked at crop conditions, crop conditions uh, as of Monday were about 58% good to excellent. Trying to find years to compare it to in the years past is close to uh, uh, most similar to 2012 at this point in time and so 2012 uh, we knew it kind of had an above average yield and so the expectations were that uh, some of the estimates that were going to come out of the field because we've had decent moisture through the winter uh, were that the crop stands were going to look pretty good. I think uh, you know it was educational to see that uh, a lot of the double crop wheat in central Kansas is going to be, is, has some challenges. It's pretty far behind. Uh, that's going to, uh, it brought down some of the averages today versus some of the wheat that got planted uh, in September. Uh, and I think those, those are the kind of things that you, you had to be able to interact and talk about. And, and, uh, and the other thing that probably, if I had to say what maybe was a surprise to the tour, is as we've moved farther west, I don't think people realize or were anticipating how much, how much topsoil uh, moisture had been depleted right. with this crop. You yep. know,
3: we were, our tour went up into Nebraska, and right. you could really tell, even in the irrigated fields, yep. that there's a definite hard crust on that top,
5: right. and
3: so, even after as, as much rain and, and snow as they've had this year.
5: Yep. And so the crop, they, you know, the plants look good, they're rooted down, you've got good tiller counts, uh, but the reality is for this crop to finish out to be a good, to reach the kind of yields that were being calculated, it's going to take some moisture. And so there's a lot of good things that still have to, have to happen to this crop. You know, Our yield counts came in today pretty good. They're not quite what 2016 was, nor is this crop like the 2016 crop was. Uh, but it is an above average crop, but there are a lot of good things still have to happen to this crop uh, for it to finish out to some of the numbers that we saw today.
3: Well, speaking of, of um, you know travel and that sort of thing, you just got back from Brazil, am I am I right?
5: That's right. No. So uh, one of the recent announcements—it's something that, uh, specific the wheat the wheat industry specifically Kansas has been working on—is uh, this issue with trying to get hardwood winter wheat into Brazil. Uh, there's been a 750,000 uh, trq where there's a. For U.S. wheat to go into Brazil right now, there's a 10% tech fee that gets put on top of it. Part of the 1994 WTO agreement was that 750,000 tons would be allowed in every year on an annual basis uh, without the tech fee being applied. And so we should be able to, as a trade policy, be able to sell hard red winter wheat at least 750,000 tons on an annual basis into Brazil. Uh, President Trump recently met with the uh, Brazilian president and they both announced about this TRQ being lifted. Uh, So U.S. Wheat Associates, uh, Vince Peterson, president of U.S. Wheat Associates, myself, uh, were able to travel down there meet with six different flour mills in the north uh, who are wanting to buy U.S. Hardwood Winter Wheat now to talk about specifically the process they need to go through because June, July is going to be an optimum time for us to be moving not just Hard red winter wheat, but new crop that starts to come off. Especially as we look at some of the world conditions, it's going to be important that the U.S. is starting to move some wheat. So to put that number into perspective,
3: how many bales spread is seven hundred fifty thousand tons?
5: <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a lot. It's certainly a it's certainly a lot. When you think about uh, how many unit trains it would be versus uh, vessel loading, it's a it's it's certainly certainly a lot of wheat that would be that would be uh, to make up that amount that would be going out of Texas and the majority of that coming out of Kansas. That's why it's such an important trade issue for us. Great.
3: Right. Well, hey, thanks, Justin. We will see you on down the road um, tomorrow. We're heading um, south on our way to from Colby to Wichita, right? That's correct. Yep. I, I hope I see you in Wichita. I hope you'll be stuck somewhere. Yeah, look forward to it. <laughs> thanks again, yeah. always, for joining us on HPJ Talk. So we were with Lon Fromm, um, who is – the CEO of From Farmland, Farmland Incorporated.
6: Incorporated, which is actually a family farm the Inc. has come to stand for kind of big evil things now, but we're very much a family farm. And Uh, you're our host for tonight, uh,
3: day two of the Kansas Quality or the Wheat Tour.
6: Yes, I am. I went to the Wheat Tour the first time last year, and once I figured out what it was, I thought it's a shame these guys don't get to see a farm, and we're only six miles away from the hotel. So I volunteered to host, and it looks like it's going to be a good event. Well,
3: I tell you what, today was a a typical first day of the wheat tour. It was rainy and, you know, all sorts of of weather coming in. Speaking of somebody on the wheat tour, we saw some really good wheat. We saw some sketchy wheat in some spots, you know, just a little bit of thin stands. What does the wheat look out your direction? What is it looking like? how can you describe
6: it? We've started out with a good stand, and it's been a very wet, although sometimes miserable, winter. But we've got a full profile and a good stand, and this looks to be one of the best crops that we've ever had.
3: Good. Well, now, you're hosting us tonight. Yeah. So um, you've got a, a quite a large operation here. It's, it's uh, kind of, you know, you've, you've got a lot of irons in the fire, as we like to say. But what's the one thing that you really wanted your visitors to take away from their tour of the farm and understanding as they go back to the mills and the, the buyers and, and, and their offices and, and understand about what we do out here in Kansas Agriculture? You no, know,
6: I think once you see the people, I want people to know that we care more than anyone about the environment and the land because we live here and to dispel any ideas that there's anything evil or plotting or wrong that's going on. And then also that farms are all different sizes. Uh, one thing I didn't mention here was six of my guys have their own farm ground and their own farm operations within mine. Wow. Six out of ten.
3: Wow. So you're building something for other families too?
6: Yes. Very yes, nice. Exactly.
3: So now um, you said it's a family farm, family operation, spread out family, right?
6: Uh, not more than than uh, first cousin. Okay. So, uh, brother, sister, mom, aunts, uncles few cousins. About two-thirds of our farm is family-owned, and the other third is leased from mostly kids I went to high school with and their families.
3: So as a farmer, what do you think about the, the week tour? And, you know, good or bad? Is, is this something that That you kind of look at with skepticism. How does it help you? You you know, what what do you gain from this knowledge base that we're pulling from this? I'd
6: heard about it for many years. I understand it's been twenty years now going, because it's it's always been on the radio and the report. And so when I discovered they were here, and I could be part of it, I just thought it was something I better check in on and do. I don't know all the details of white how it began and got put together, but I'm certain that it's interesting. Oh yeah. And. we always like guests here at From Farmland and especially further away and international guests. For 20 years I've hired international interns here on the farm. Yeah.
3: So now you have one employee here that's an H2A visa. We have
6: two H2As okay. and uh, one that is becoming a citizen from England, two from Zimbabwe. Wonderful. And uh, There's a map up there in the hallway if you look with the pins from every one of the kids that we've hosted.
3: So. You know, a lot of our listeners may not understand the H-2A program. They may not understand immigration issues in western Mm -hmm. Kansas. But as a farmer, that that's part of your labor, and that's part of what you need to do to, to keep the operation going a little bit. Is there... Pros cons. I, is there ways that we can change things for the better? Is there if
6: we could make it easier? It seems like the the more reason someone has to be here, and the more we want them, the more difficult it is to get them here. We didn't know if our guys were going to be able to get in this year or not. We've had people that couldn't get out of the airport wow. and had to turn around and go back home. I here it's it's not so much as a at the citrus and where it takes that much physical labor, but I view it as international exchange, mm-hmm. international understanding and. Oh, I bet half of our kids have come back and maybe brought their families. Some have been back half a dozen times.
3: Wow. Well, anything else that you want people to understand about Colby or farming out this direction? Because it's it's not the end of the world, but it's within eyesight. No,
6: you could say it's marginal out here. Yeah and we figured out ways to adapt. And I didn't talk about, my, some of my family came in the 1880s, but we stayed through the 1930s, not many did. Right. And I think you'll find in this area, the people that stayed have a little different personality and attitude than the ones that left. And so we're our own unique group out here on the very edge it of the Dust Bowl, the high place. Yes, there's a re- There's reason some people left and a reason some stayed and you're looking at the ones who stayed.
3: Well, we are so thankful that you stayed. This is a lovely facility, and thank you for joining us on HPJ Talk. And don't forget, folks, uh, you can follow us online at www.hpj.com. Thank you again, Mr. Fromm. Thank you. We are with Matthew Nims, uh, Deputy Director of USAID's Office for Food Food for Peace. (laughs) That is a long title, but (laughs) that title um, means that you have a really great job. (laughs) Right? So, explain your job to farmers that aren't under, that don't understand USAID.
7: Uh, great. Thank you for this opportunity, and I uh, would we'll love to talk about USAID. So, USAID is the U.S. Agency for International Development, and I am the Deputy Director of the Office of Food for Peace. And what we do, in, in a nutshell, what we've done for quite a long time, is we buy food from U.S. farmers, like here I am standing here in Kansas, in Colby, Kansas, and we put it on mostly U.S. ships, and we ship it over to hungry people around the world. I think the first obvious question is, why do we do that? Well, number one, it's because we are a, a, a strong, good nation that cares about its neighbors around the world. But actually, more relevant to why we're doing this is we're trying to make the world a safer place. There's a lot of bad guys and bad things happening in the world right now as there has been through history. And what we do, especially in the Food for Peace, something as basic as giving food to hungry people is to bring stability to... An area, lots of areas in the world that are under crisis and conflict. We have a saying that a hungry person is a susceptible person, is a vulnerable person. If you can't feed your family, you're going to do things maybe that you shouldn't do. Right. And there's a lot of bad people out there trying to get people to do bad things. If we can bring instability and try and bring an element of, of, of peace into that, we're going to make the world a safer place. The other reason that we exist, quite frankly, is so that people, especially in the agricultural sector of the United States, can find better trading partners around the world. The biggest countries that we've worked with over the years, like South Korea, Brazil, even parts of India, are now the largest agricultural trading partners with the U.S. There's a direct connection. The better and safer we make countries around the world, the better trading partners we have.
3: Well, and, you know, Kansas's favorite son, Bob Dole, had a direct line into Creating USAID, right, and
7: the Food for Peace program. Actually, a little bit of the Food for Peace program, and I had actually an opportunity to, to visit with with Senator Dole uh, a couple of times overseas when I was stationed, and he came to see us. What What Senator Dole is especially known for is the McGovern Dole Food for Education mm-hmm. program, which is run through our sister program at the University at the. Uh, at USDA, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that program is exactly what it is, is using U.S. food to give kids school lunches. Sometimes in many places of the world we work, the only food people will get during the day is going to the school and, and eating the school lunch provided by the U.S. government in conjunction with the government that they're in the host community. So Bob Dole, that his name is on that program for a reason because he pioneered that.
3: So if you could talk to a farmer and say anything, you know having been overseas with the program having now been domestically um what what would you say to a kansas farmer or high plains farmer that's growing wheat that's going directly to people that are hungry
7: so i think the first thing i would say is is thank you and thank you on, on a couple of different levels thank you number one for just the work that you do here having seen agricultural systems in a few countries around the world It really is true that nothing competes with with what the U.S. has created over the years. The agricultural infrastructure and what we do here, we lead the world on several levels. And it it, it is very obvious when you go see places around the world. So just thank you for all that you have created. Number two, thank you for your hard-earned money that allows Food for Peace and the U.S. Agency for National Development to exist. I think what we do is really, really important. And we do it because we are trying to make the world a safer place and because we're trying to minimize risk and we're trying to make better trading partners. So thank you for allowing us to do that because it is important that we have support from, especially from farmers in the Midwest, in Kansas, being a University of Kansas graduate myself, though not having the pleasure of, of being born and raised in Kansas, I do have a little bit of a, of a, of a heartfelt feeling for being back in Kansas. So, so thank you for letting me talk about this.
3: Well, thank you for what you do. Um, there's a lot of good that's going uh, on out there. My dad used to raise wheat, and he always said, you know, honey, there's a portion of this that's going to go feed some hungry kid overseas. And so what we do on the ground here matters to somebody that we will never know their names but you know we can hope that that we're making a better difference in their lives
7: i can tell you absolutely that is true from the mouth of of children in in zimbabwe to yemen to south sudan that's exactly what happens to the bounty of the american farmer we are leading the way
3: wonderful well thank you so much for joining us on hpj talk and good luck on the rest of the tour thank you Alrighty, we're here with Dave Green, Executive Vice President of the Wheat Quality Council. So, Dave, you are the guru of the Wheat Tour, right?
0: I guess so, yeah. By default and by longevity, I've outlasted them all.
3: So, the Wheat Tour, we're in our 62nd year of it. Um, why, are we, why, are, why are we still finding value in this tour today? What, what do we see when we're bringing all these folks out here that we just don't get in any other format?
0: You know, there was probably a time when everybody that was involved in agricultural business was a farm kid. And they had very direct knowledge of what was going on with the crops and how things worked on the farm so our that's not the case yeah builders. yeah and and yeah and the 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 uh, government people everybody had more of a contact with the farm that's kind of changed now, and everybody there's a lot of City people, city-raised people that don't have a background in agriculture but went to college and they're smart. They just don't know what's going out on the farm. And this tour is a chance for us to get those people trained up. They're going to be around a long time. They're going to be very influential in their businesses. And we want to get them off on good footing so that they can see the challenges, the opportunities that are involved in raising wheat.
3: You know, two years ago, my first time I was on the tour, it was memorable because it was snow, but I also remembered there were buyers there from Walmart. There were, you know, there were big corporations that we, send their people out yeah. their youngsters out here essentially to, to get trained up like that. Yeah,
0: these are not, uh, we're, we're predominantly young on the tour, but that's because it's a training opportunity for people who are targeted for for advancement in their companies the wheat value chain is much bigger than a lot of people think. I mean, it's not just the grain companies and the millers, but it's the bakers and the end users and the Walmart's of the world that are that are looking at this crop. We have people from Switzerland here this year that are that are looking that are world wheat traders that that are interested in what's going on in Kansas and to learn about what's going on with the crop. So I, I think this is a great opportunity for people to, to be trained up. We think it's important. We try to contrast that with the with the demands of this, time period which is we have to have credibility we want we, we this isn't a field days this is a wheat tour so we're trying to teach them how wheat works and how how the how yield is built but in the meantime we're taking our own measurements on routes that we take every year with yield formulas that are provided for us and so we try to be as credible as possible in addition to being a training exercise
3: so speaking of routes you know on the Twitter sphere there's always somebody that says hey why are not you come here, why aren't you going over here? Why aren't you up here? Um, maybe talk about the logistics of, of covering a state like Kansas. Plus, we've got a route that goes up into Nebraska. We've got a route that goes down into Oklahoma. Um, what does it take to get people from point A to point B to point C back to point A in three days?
0: Yeah, you can only make the route so long, and, and we do have to go to certain cities, and and, uh, and, and there's only a, a few ways to get there. I think we cover ninety some plus 90% of the acreage counties in, in the region. Region. So, so we are doing a nice job. We can't quite get to everywhere. I, I'll tell you today. My route was the blue route. We went, we went from Colby to Goodland, then south to. Um, we went through Tribune and. Uh, uh johnson mm-hmm. and then came east it was it was an eight and a half hour drive and so we had 12 hours we were in the car over 12 hours today which is an awful long time to be out looking at wheat. so we can't quite cover every area but we try we do the best we can we're not take these are not short routes
3: Right. so now um we talked about routes we talked about why we're still doing this we talked about the people that you meet on the tour but there are traditions on the tour and i this is only my second year that i've gotten to go but um even i know there's some long-standing you know rules of, and we, we call them rules but it's more like guidelines of get out of the car and see something right uh,
0: this is me personally that mm-hmm. then i have kind of encouraged this over the years but i tell people that that 30 years from now you're not going to remember an individual wheat field but you'll remember the biggest ball of twine and so those kind of 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 things that th- they break up the day, they're 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 interesting to people to see. It's a part of Kansas that's kind of fun, and I always try to make sure that we we do something. Uh, you know, eat at a restaurant that's not a chain. You know, uh, visit visit a historical marker. Go to a county museum. Go to one of these tourist trap kind of things. Uh, I think it I think it enhances the experience.
3: Good. Now we have one one big tradition of the tour, and that oh. is place your bets. What do you think the problem's gonna be? Huh?
0: Yeah, and 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 it's it's very you know we don't want to overestimate this we're using a yield formula to make our measurements in the car every day and we publish that data we publish it versus last year or 10 years ago so we've got this long-term data on how we what the formula says the crop's going to do but we encourage, we, we have a tradition of, of placing a guess for how it's finally going to do. So we, we ask everybody to take a guess of how big, basis, only the people on the tour can make a guess, but basis what they've learned, what do they think is going to happen. Is the week going to get better or worse than our data indicates? And what we found over the years is that, and again, we publish all this data, what we found is that the average of all those guesses tends to be pretty close to the USDA may estimate so we, we, we've done a nice job with having on the tour as many optimists as pessimists so that it all evens out to come back somewhere to where the what the crop actually is.
3: Anything else you want folks to understand about the, the wheat
0: tour? It's, it's tradition and, and we think it adds value now to, to young people. Uh, you know, we're long past the area where companies are going to spend several thousand dollars to send somebody out into Kansas for three days if they don't think it's worthwhile. So we continue to send people back to their companies, encouraged and energized about what's going on in agriculture, and they continue to send, sell the, the tour for us so that year after year we get the same number of people.
3: Well, Dave, thank you so very much for being the tour guru of, uh, of the Wheat Quality Council. I, I, just, I just christened you that, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks. So we are with Romulo Lulato, um, Kansas State Wheat Extension Specialist, and you drove a car all three days. Um, you're the, the go-to guy to explain what exactly is going on in the crop out in that field. And so what did we see and what are some perils that we might face in the next 60 days?
8: So the, um, I think this crop, uh, the way that I'm, that I'm looking at this crop, if we were on time, so if the crop was on time, I think we had the potential to have a very big crop or to have a big crop in Kansas this year. However, we are seeing two to four, even five weeks behind where we're supposed to be. And that's my major concern because that really is going to put grain filling through heat stress, right? We're essentially pushing that entire cycle back and instead of, let's say, instead of heading uh, in late April in South Central Kansas, now we might be heading actually in May 10th or May 15th. That's two weeks less of cooler temperatures that the, the grain has, or the, the crop has to go through grain filling. So um, my concern there is really pushing uh, how far behind the crop is. It can catch up real quick if temperatures are hot, which is bad for yield, it's very detrimental for yield, right? So, because of that, I prefer to take a more conservative look at it right now. I think we're about on a, probably an average crop this year, because as as good looking as the fields are on general, uh, we are behind, right? And what happened last year at this time exactly? We were four weeks behind, and. By the end of May, we were talking that we were a week ahead of schedule. So the crop caught up real quick. So uh, that's why I'm being a little bit more conservative here and saying that I think, well, the crop's looking good overall. Low disease pressure, although it might still develop, and we can talk about it here in a little bit. Uh, But really, because of how far behind we are in development, uh, I'm calling it probably more on the average, long-term average crop.
3: So you know we've we've got to worry about heat coming up. We've got to worry about more rains. We're in an El Nino season, so we already saw an extremely wet winter, and that could go right on into late spring, early summer. Talking about disease, what does that potential? You know, what's that potential, and is it even worth, guys, if it's starting to head out in places? Is it even worth you know bothering with an application or something?
8: Yeah. So that's a good question, and. Definitely every single field that we got into, there was uh, dew and it was soaking wet, right? So, in other words, the the conditions for fungal diseases to develop are excellent, especially stripe rust. Although both leaf and stripe rust benefit from moisture, as we have now, uh, the temperatures being below average, they're helping more, I mean, they would be more favorable to stripe rust than leaf rust. So, uh, the question is, uh, we are already starting to find some fields in South Central Kansas that have both stripe and leaf rust. That means that that actually the, the disease has been there for at least a couple of weeks. It takes us two weeks to see the first sy- uh, symptoms of it. So that also means with all this rain that we had this last week that probably this disease, this disease already moved north as well. So maybe here in a couple of weeks we're going to start seeing those diseases show up. So there are two, two possible scenarios here, right? We start seeing the, the forecast for the next two weeks are below average temperatures, above average moisture. So likelihood is that the disease will continue to, to develop. Now, in two weeks, uh, is it still within the, the, the application time frame for fungicides? Pre-harvest, right. Pre-harvest interval, exactly. Many fungicides cannot be sprayed if you have uh, 45 days pre-harvest, and that's quite a long time others of course have more of a growth stage uh, restriction flowering or so and it's produ- producers can still apply a fungicide as late as flowering and in a year where disease is prevalent and varieties are susceptible it, it's definitely kind of money on the bank right so i guess it's a field to field decision right if the, if the disease is present in that field if the if the variety that is planted to that field is susceptible as well um, well that's a uh, uh, typically it's it's the situation where the likelihood of a positive net return is greater.
3: And we really gotta look at the price of the wheat right now and um, other options. You know, we already saw a lot of graze out in parts of Oklahoma, more in Oklahoma obviously, because that's what they do. But we even saw some graze wheat here in Kansas, it sounds like from the tour participants.
8: Yes, we did see several fields that were being grazed out in Kansas. I did not go to the Oklahoma, but I yeah, definitely Oklahoma that's that, that's almost the norm there. And another The thing that surprised me this year as well is just the number of fields that were actually sprayed like uh, with with glyphosate, right, just desiccated. Just Just Mm terminated, yeah. And so most of the ones that I saw actually in the second day, uh, our car counted 13 fields that were desiccated in that route. That's that's comparatively with previous years, that's a lot.
3: Yeah, and you went right through the center part of the state, so you got to see a a lot of really big representative samples.
8: Definitely, so I think you're, you're right on when you say I mean, producers are looking for what is more profitable, right, there, the situation is they have moisture in the profile, right, so that subsoil moisture is definitely there. With this re- week's rain, they definitely have topsoil moisture as well, uh, so those conditions and price conditions are probably more uh, giving producers to go towards corn rather than wheat, and so I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so many fields actually uh, have that, that were terminated. Any final thoughts? Well, maybe just one final thought there uh, that was more apparent today than some of the other days of the tour. Um, Waterlogging conditions. Yeah. Right? Oh my
3: goodness.
8: I haven't been this, like, waterlogged myself. It's been a long time. No, definitely. So, the wheat doesn't really like, we we say that the wheat doesn't like wet feet, Mm -hmm. right? In other words, if the soil is waterlogged, we're going to have conditions where there's no oxygen and the wheat is pretty sensitive, much more than other crops to those conditions. And so we can actually have just l- lower parts of the field just uh, just drowning out. And that is going to look like a, a premature widening of the heads and of the entire plants as well. And once you get into those spots and try to sample, the kernels are going to be very small, very shriveled, very low test weight. And huge large or very large areas of a field can actually be waterlogged. We've seen these in past years, and I, again, uh, it's good to have this moisture, of course. But if if we're on the other side of the curve, or if we have too much moisture, that can also be a concern.
3: Okay. Thank you so much for coming along on the tour, for explaining stuff to newbies and old hands alike. <laughs> this was, like I said, only second tour I've been on, but way fun. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the
8: show. Yeah, thank you very much.
1: grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on April 23rd, 2019, corn was down at $3.36, wheat was down at $3.70, milo was down at $2.86, and soybeans were down at $7.17.
4: For generations, High Plains Journal's classified ads have been a go-to resource for all of your farm and ranch needs, and soon we will bring that same service and commitment to the digital sphere with our upgraded classifieds online. Check your upcoming issues for more details about this service or call 1-800-452-7171 to talk to one of our account
7: executives.
1: If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com signup sign up. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. <laughs> Next week's print issue of High Plains Journal Midwest Ag Journal is our dairy issue. It'll be coming to your mailboxes on May 6th. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hbjtalk at hbj.com.
3: Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail.
1: This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt Road in a Gooseneck, sad love with me. I land
0: in God's country, crops far as I can see. The
1: headlights on both ends of my day. This country lies.